Landlords in Los Angeles get hit with a cold truth. Air conditioning units will soon be required in all rental properties. Talking trash. A solar-powered robot boat is coming to save a shore near you. The Interceptor 007 is on a mission to capture and eliminate plastic waste from the world's waterways. Then it will loosen its tie and have a martini. And... Are you baby-talking to me? Robert De Niro and Al Pacino get an offer they can't refuse. Fatherhood in their 80s. We're here to get you through it all. Our goal is to deliver a healthy future, uh, one healthy baby at a time. We're the Green Docs, two OBGYNs talking about the environment and how it affects women's health and birth outcomes. I'm Nate DiNicola, a perpetually post-call OBGYN in Southern California, the national and international uh, environmental health expert for uh, women's health medical societies, and a recent interview guest with the New York Times talking about wildfire smoke on the East Coast, which I hope is a story that doesn't repeat itself too often on the West Coast this year. And I'm Bruce Picard, a OBGYN in San Diego, a lover of great food and wine. And borrowing from the recent words of Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, I'm, I'm a kind of a conservative. I'm actively working to conserve healthy soils, clean water, and clear skies. In today's episode, Daddy Issues, we explore another part of the fertility equation, essentially a guy's guide to getting pregnant as we honor dads and celebrate Father's Day. We're going to be joined shortly by renowned fertility specialist Dr. Ravi Gada, an OBGYN in Dallas, Texas, previously of the Mayo Clinic, a leader in the National OBGYN Medical Societies. And you might have seen Ravi on eChannel, taking care of Terry Bradshaw's daughter last year. But to start, Nate, what did you think about that first ad headline about air conditioning? Well, I think we kind of continued our track record of predicting future headlines. Uh, you know, first we had the election in Wisconsin that, that you know, went pro-patient, as our guest Kristen Lyerly said. And then just last episode, we were talking with meteorologist Mary Marshall, who was suggesting at some point the heat is going to get so bad, we're going to have to kind of just build air conditioning into our living spaces, into our urban housing, and, and in this case, rental units. So it's a trend I'm in favor of. Yeah, and they actually said, uh, this is a vote by the LA City Council, uh, that it's directly an attempt to lower emergency room visits during heat waves. Uh, and owners are likely going to push back against having to make these upfront investments in these air conditioning units. But we certainly expect that this problem that we're having with heat is likely to get worse for at least the time being. And these owners should keep in mind the idea that renters that they have may have trouble paying the rent if the heat's so bad that they can't go to work and earn the money to pay rent. I'm imagining that Aflac duck coming on right now. You know, if you get hurt and miss work, you hurts to miss work. Like if, if you're, it, it's actually funny that the original reason for health insurance, uh, believe it or not, was to provide funds for you uh, since you'd be missing your paycheck when you are sick away from work. Like it was, it was not to cover all the health bills. It was to help you just supplement your income because you wouldn't be getting it while you were away sick. I do want to throw in one more point about this story about the air conditioning. The ordinance is still in process and that's important. Some of the details still have to be ironed out. But I'm hoping that they mandate energy-efficient mini-splits, air conditioning units that are newer and just cool rooms or sections of apartments over the old-fashioned traditional air conditioning units. Because even though they're a bit more expensive to install, they're far cheaper to run. They use a lot less energy. It's just a better solution since we don't want to be adding to the problem at the same time. Well, speaking of new techie solutions coming out of Los Angeles, we've got the plastic picking robot ship uh, interceptor 007 what'd you think bruce that that take you back to james bond years absolutely i don't know how in the world 007 got tied up in the name of this thing but it's pretty cool it's a solar powered autonomous trash collector boat which has booms uh attached to it that that bring trash in essentially uh it's stationed at a river outlet uh, draining a lot of water from the metropolitan area of Los Angeles. But they actually gathered over 60 tons of trash that was headed for Santa Monica Bay between October and mid-January. And this is needed because the 
the barriers that are already in place in some of these waterways get overwhelmed when we have these major rainfall events, and a huge amount of trash can get uh, into the ocean this way. And this particular boat is just one of many new technological inventions that are attempting to address the problem of, of waterways loaded with trash. Uh, mo- many of us have heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is a massive collection of trash out in the Pacific. But this company, uh, which uh, is a Netherlands-based nonprofit called Ocean Cleanup, has the intention to remove 90% of all floating debris in the world's oceans by 2040. We need to remember that this is not just unsightly or sad when we see trash in the water like this, but it's often deadly to lots of sea life, uh, to birds, and it's very bad for us as humans uh, if we ingest uh, any of the sea life that has been contaminated by this trash. Yeah, that's right. We were reminded of that with our uh, headline last episode where three quarters of women uh, were found to have microplastics in the breast milk. Uh, it's not, it, it kind of goes beyond individual decision-making. You know, it's not just you pick a, say, non-plastic water bottle for yourself or try to have uh, alternatives at home. You know, at some point, if it gets in the water supply, it's going to get back to you one way or another. So uh, we'll, we'll need technology like this to help us. Uh, in, my, in my other role with, with our uh, OBGYN Medical Society, I work on telehealth. And so there's a bit of a technologist angle to uh, things. And in a weird way, I'm almost encouraged that this robot uh, failed the first few times and we had to learn from past mistakes and they had to kind of iterate and solve for the first two uh, tech damages that happened when, when there were storms. And so this third time, it, it's not just that it worked, but it seems like they really problem solved along the way too. Speaking of problems upcoming and challenges, what about this story about these... Uh octogenarian celebrity dads, Bob De Niro and Al Pacino. Well, first of all, it would have been surprising if one of them was expecting a child. But the fact that both are at the same time, I mean, these guys are just tied together somehow. Uh, it, it's, it's almost incredible. Uh, what, what came to mind were first a million Godfather quotes and, and Marlon Brando impersonations. But, uh, you know, the, the one quote that I imagine... Al Pacino especially kept hearing to himself was, every time I think I'm out, they keep pulling me back in. Although, Al, we do have to remember you had something to do with this happening, I think. Uh, But that might be a a story that that will come up a little later in this episode when we talk about uh, challenges to sperm production. So, you know, I'm sure that if these two couples that have children run into any issues... Uh, having to do with childcare, that they will be able to get all the, the the support that they need. But I'm a little worried about the the wives of these two gentlemen, and and uh, as the years go on, uh, if they might have uh, some extra challenges doing elder care at the same time they're doing childcare. Well, it, it's it's a story in progress, and uh, you know, I, I hope at least the the kids do kind of have an openness to the work that their dads have done, uh, especially The Godfather. Uh, it was uh, still you know, one of my favorite movies, uh, movie series. Uh, I love the book by Mario Puzo. And uh, I was introduced to this uh, originally by my father, who uh, we're delighted to host here on our Father's Day episode. Uh, Dr. Greg DiNicola uh, has been a, a practicing family medicine doctor and uh, did obstetrics for over 30 years. He is the CEO of his medical group, uh, and he is an avid gardener and, in his spare time, a preservationist of historic landmarks from Laguna Beach all the way through Seal Beach. So delighted to have my dad, uh, Dr. Greg DiNicola, here on the Green Docks. And for today's meta moment, Nate, did you hear about the manager of the Detroit Twins, who is himself, I guess he and his wife, expecting twins in September? It's got to have the manager of the Giants a little worried about (laughs) what might be coming his way. Dad, welcome to the Green Docks and uh, a happy Father's Day. Yeah, it's actually, I think, 45 years, but who's counting? That's uh, of being a doctor. Um, Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Dad, so you you were an OB for a long time. Um, Did... 
did this topic of, of environmental health at all come up when, when you were seeing uh, pregnant patients? Uh, was it something you talked about in the hospital? Uh, so it's point of order because I know I'm talking to two obstetricians. I prepped, I delivered babies for a long time. I wasn't really in OB for a long time. That's your guys' check. Um, no, not at all. Uh, of course, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong because you guys are the experts, but I don't think the term global warming even existed back when I was doing obstetrics. That would have been from 83 to 99, 2000. So if, if it was, it was, what do they say, a twinkle in God's eye? It really wasn't uh, being discussed. Um, I don't really recall any environmental issues when I did OB um, at all. Just things I did, and I think I was maybe a little ahead of my time, or maybe not that, or maybe I was a little bit, because I've always been a environmental Sierra Club kind of guy. Um, but I remember telling my pregnant women to stay indoors on a smoggy day. Of course, we told all our patients that, but I made a special point to tell my OB patients that for all the obvious reasons, and I think not all doctors did that. No, we certainly weren't taught that. Yeah, so that you were, you really were ahead of your time, and that's exactly the kind of advice, yeah, that we were passing on this week. Yeah, it just makes sense because, uh, and the air quality is much worse back then, so it made sense that you know we don't want them out there breathing all the ozone and all that. Any other favorite stories from obstetrics that that come to mind? Well, I mean, looking back on it, uh, one thing that was timely. It was probably mid-90s, early 90s, and um, I guess I had a reputation of being somewhat of a maverick. I, I didn't think I was, but uh, two gay gentlemen came to see me this was before gay marriage was allowed, and they were together as a couple for about five or ten years, and they arranged for a private adoption. Not to adopt a baby was being born. She was in the neighborhood of my office. She wasn't my patient yet, but she became my patient. And they were paying everything cash, uh, uh, no insurance involved. They paid the hospital, they paid me, they paid everybody. And they're pretty, they were fun guys, always joking around, kind of like the pair on Modern Family. They kind of always made you smile. So, um, of course, I wasn't there back then. So I, I thought it was great. I said, sure, no problem. And oh, looking back, the, the I mean, I thought I might get kicked off the hospital staff. Uh, the nurses, when they came in, were just uh, un relentless against this poor child. They're going to grow up without a mother and no female figure, and they're going to turn gay. Parents are gay, and I mean, all the ignorant things you won't laugh at now if they were <laughs> if it wasn't so serious. Um, my own partners told me I shouldn't do it. Uh, some friends of mine said that was, you know, if you don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And I said, well. Okay, so that's why I should do it. And they were thinking, no, you don't, you don't want to get involved in that. This is a bomb you don't want to touch. And the more they told me not to, the more stubborn I got. And it's like, well, these are two nice guys. And they said, well, they don't. Who knows? They'll be together forever. I said, well, how many married couples stay together forever? Very few. So that that's a weak argument. So um, I never saw the I, the mother I took care of for many years after. I never saw them or the child, baby again. But the delivery went very smoothly, very nice. Uh, what drove the nurses crazy? They had arranged for them to be in the delivery room, and I delivered the baby from the perineum and handed it to them, not to the mom, which drove everybody crazy. <laughs> um, so, but they, the three of them bonded for you know a couple hours in the room. So anyway, that was a, that was a memorable. It, it, probably today that'd be boring, but back then it was quite uh, controversial. That's a great story. That is uh, a real example of your willingness to to do things because you think they're right, even though they're really unpopular. So that tells us a lot about you, and that's another quality that that this particular son of yours that I know has. Nate Nate does things on principle, even if it yeah. uh, aggravates me from time to time. Every now and then, don't don't believe that, listener. That doesn't that doesn't really happen. So, Dad, actually, I, I just you know, for the listeners here and for anybody, uh, I don't know, curious about how we prepare these interviews. I I had never heard that story before, uh, so I'm so I'm so really? glad if for nothing else, oh. uh, you know, on this oh. podcast, I get to hear some new stories from you because that that's new. I had never heard that. Yeah. Now I know that that food is really important to you and the family, and medicine, of course, is your other passion. Uh, is there anything you can share? 
uh, about how those passions overlap for you and how you see food and medicine uh, together uh, in your mind or with patients? That's a really good question. It it gives me a segue into some very uh, good answers, but unfortunately I I don't think I I have what what you're looking for. I I think food's important because I like food and in our family, we're Italian, and so in our family, um, on both sides, uh, my mom's and dad's side, food was very important. You always, if you had a guest over for any reason, you always served him food, and better be good food and wine. You know, better better have good wine for your friends, and um, that's just that was just our heritage. And in visiting Italy m- multiple times uh, the last twenty years, it's I see where they got it. Everybody, everybody in Italy is very. Uh, food oriented every every restaurant every house is that way so I don't think that really tied into me being a doctor or patients I was just raised to know food is important and it better be good and that's what do you, we do do you think you counsel patients about food any differently than your peers do yeah, well I don't know about now because I haven't practiced in a couple of years but um, I really did the usual low fat low calorie low salt low cholesterol um, for many years, um, but taking the easy way out, I hired a dietitian to do most of that. But I became a huge advocate of the Mediterranean diet about 15 years ago. Read all the books, did a lot of research, and I couldn't figure out why everybody wasn't doing it. Um, the numbers were just too convincing, not only for heart disease and strokes, but for various cancers and Alzheimer prevention and all that. And the cool thing with the Mediterranean diet is you don't have to forbid anything, really. You can just make sure the meats are lean, a lot of fish, a lot of salmon, uh, a lot of fruits and vegetables, a lot of grains, um, but but uh, garlic and tomato and avocado and red wine, of course. But uh, it, it's, a, it's not a diet that you have to be weird on. So I've counseled on that for many of the lectures on it. Uh, that's kind of been my passion is the Mediterranean diet. Uh, I was pretty good till last night when I had a breaded pork chop, but till last night, <laughs> I, I really followed it very well. So yeah, that, that's the diet I've always Yeah, Bruce. You know, it's interesting. We, it's Father's Day, so I got to throw in a story about my father. He was an aerospace engineer, but he was also a, a passionate reader and loved to learn. And he studied nutrition for a good 30 years. Uh, and he became a huge proponent of the Mediterranean diet, which he would tell anybody who would listen. Uh, He actually wrote a book about treating heart disease uh, with diet. And when he was diagnosed with uh, coronary vessel disease, he actually lowered his own cholesterol from 180 down to about 120. He used to brag to me, uh, he had angina one time and he never had it again after he got onto this diet, this really pretty strict diet. Uh, But he was always very proud of telling me that his cardiologist looked at his blood test results at one point and said, Harry, you need to eat more fat. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. That's good. So it's yeah. the same, same story. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's my diet of choice. And I try to abide by it as much as I can. But the biggest thing in the Mediterranean diet, I've done some side reading on it. And the one universal, there's some debate what makes up a Mediterranean diet. But one thing that's not debatable is the olive oil. Uh, olive oil is an essential component They've even done studies with, with diets that are 100% olive oil as the fat instead of other oils or butter or whatever. And uh, maybe the Mediterranean diet is false since really an olive oil diet. Maybe that's really what you need is a lot of olive oil. But I know my dad, uh, he died of something unrelated to cardiac, but in his late 80s. My mom made it in her mid-90s. And we went through, I mean, my dad would buy these huge cans of olive oil every week and put it on everything. <laughs> salads and meat and i mean we drank the stuff so uh and we still do today i still go through olive oil like crazy so i hope that i hope that's true i hope because that's my well i remember our great grandma uh would put it all over her skin that was her evening routine was olive oil olive oil on her skin uh bruce i gotta tell you and and bath yeah uh it wasn't until i was in my 20s in medical school that i realized the mediterranean diet was anything other than just the diet like i didn't know there was anything else really uh growing up and so it was kind of cool to see there was data behind it and yeah all the kind of different specifics of it 
Dad, so in addition to cooking, which is a big part of our home life, you have kind of more recently undertaken gardening. Uh, does, does that have any kind of environmental aspect to you? Do, you? do you think about pesticides and natural approaches? Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you I did. Um, I definitely enjoy the side benefit that I know what goes on there, which is hose water only. I mean, there's nothing else that touches it. And that's very gratifying to me. But I, I don't want to lie and say that's why I went into gardening. Um, I, I don't, I would never use anything. I mean, I'd rather plant dye than put Last year, my tomatoes got blight, which means the, the leaves were just on all the plants just were failing. And I looked up, and there are all these different remedies. But they all invited, they all, they all required going to Home Depot and buying various uh, formulas. And I just tore them all out and threw them away. I, I don't want to do that. But um, I think our, your youngest brother, who's the chef, taught me the least number of minutes from when you pick something or harvest it till it's in your mouth is the best taste, whether it's 10 minutes or an hour or a day. But when you go to the grocery store, it could be days since it was harvested. So there's something very gratifying about starting the basil myself, nothing more than compost and, and uh, you know, my warm casings and water uh, to grow them. And then I pick it myself and it goes from the garden bed to the blender with olive oil and pine nuts and over my pasta in 10 minutes and it's the best tasting pesto in the world. And that's the gratification I get. And yes, there are no pesticides. I don't know if it meets the criteria for organic, but it's 100% natural. And that means a lot to me, but I don't think that's the reason I went into it. Well, it's definitely the best tasting pesto that uh, that I've ever had. And uh, I know this, this father's day will have some boating and some restaurants, but uh, I always look forward to our home cooked meals. So uh, so, uh, also appreciate the effort you put into that to making it making it not just uh, healthy but but very fresh. Uh, so, well, Dad, yeah, thanks for joining us on this uh, Father's Day episode, and and Happy Father's Day. Uh, you said a, a fantastic example for us, and we really hope this episode reaches you know a lot of other families that are that are able to honor and celebrate Father's Day uh, this this month. Okay, and I'll see you work on <laughs> yes, Monday. Well. Thanks for joining us, Greg. Happy Father's Day. So now we are delighted to be joined uh, by our guest, Dr. Ravi Gada. He is a renowned fertility specialist in Dallas, Texas, uh, but previously with the Mayo Clinic and has been a leader in the um, National uh, OBGYN Medical Societies. It's how Ravi and I first met. Uh, So we're really looking forward to talk to him about, about, you know, some of the... um, lesser discussed topics in fertility, especially male factor infertility. Uh, now in medical school, this was taught to us as there was roughly a third that are female factor, a third that are male factor, and a third that are mixed. We know that emerging data shows that it may be even up to half of fertility uh, issues are, are due to male factor. These often fall into categories like anatomy with something with dilated uh, blood vessels called a varicocele, sperm quality and amount, uh, whether the anatomic systems are functioning properly and even immune uh, considerations. There is also, however, at least an emerging discussion about environmental contributors to things at a global scale uh, that suggest there could be signs of declining sperm counts, uh, decreasing testosterone. And we'd like to get into a little more of uh, that topic also on, on the less appreciated environmental contributors to infertility. And speaking of the environmental factors, I think one of the key concepts here is that we're talking, when we're talking about sperm production, we're talking about sex cells. And just like the the egg and a woman's side, uh, sex cells are rapidly dividing. They're exquisitely sensitive. Obviously, their genetic contents and their, their normalcy is crucial to having a healthy baby result. Uh, and so these sensitive cells are uh, dividing in the midst of environmental influences as well, as we increasingly find in our discussions during these podcasts. So uh, the primary categories are uh, toxic chemicals, oftentimes the endo- endocrine-disrupting chemicals, pesticides and herbicides and the like. Uh, there is also now showing up in the literature some suggestion 
uh, in one large review that air pollution and heat are potentially contributing uh, to impacts on sperm quality. So uh, we know that this is still early stages in terms of sorting this all out, but that's partly why we want to have this interview with an expert. So without further ado, Ravi, welcome to the Green Docs. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Bruce. Good to see you guys. Con congratulations on the podcast and i um, happy to be here. Thanks, Ravi. So uh, let's kind of just jump right into the, the first topic we presented, which is what are some things that, that men can do who are trying to conceive uh, to improve their chances? So uh, typically when people are trying to get pregnant, obviously we know it, there's a sperm and an egg involved. And so uh, as you guys alluded to earlier, there's a lot of focus on the egg, but the sperm is also 50% of the equation. And so um, when people are trying to conceive, we, we typically you know, want them to be healthy. So you know, eating a good diet, um, exercising, if they're overweight, you know, working on uh, weight loss, um, being supportive to both partners in the relationship that are, are, are trying to get pregnant is always important. And um, the, um, you know, the other question that gets asked often is, how often should we have intercourse? Is, uh, are we supposed to be having intercourse uh, two times a day, uh, one time a week? And, and the, the short answer is either intercourse daily or every other day. Um, and there was some thought of every other day allows for sperm counts to actually build up further. And so that um, is probably recommended more frequently, but it's also because uh, when people have infertility and have been trying for as long as they have, it becomes a chore. And actually there's some challenges with having intercourse every day. And so, um, you know, trying to get back to, uh, you know, making life more enjoyable, making relations more enjoyable and not a chore is important. And I think, you know, both men and women can work on that. Robbie, do you recommend any particular music to go along with these attempts at conception? Are you a Barry White fan or uh, do you think it makes any difference at all? Uh, so I, 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 I cannot th uh, think of a, a music in mind that I have recommended, but I would say all of that matters in terms of even erectile dysfunction actually comes up with infertility because, again, it becomes a chore. And so anything you can do to spice things up in the relationship so that, you know, intercourse and relationships are not a chore. So I think, believe it or not, I do think things like that do matter, whether it's uh, getting back to dating again and, and going on dates and um, doing the little things that we kind of uh, let go after a, a while. Um, so anything that helps, uh, we would encourage. Go out to dinner, have a few oysters or something like that. That's right. That's right. I'm thinking of the, the Friends episodes in those later seasons when uh, Chandler and Monica were trying to get pregnant. And I think the phrase was, pants off, Bing. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to switch gears a little bit. Uh, you know, this is the Green Dogs podcast. I know we talk about the environment a lot, but, but I, before we get into that, I wanted to ask you about another uh, kind of side passion of ours, which is new technology and telehealth. Uh, how much of a part of your field is telehealth? How often do patients ask about, you know, what apps can be used to help improve their chances of getting pregnant? Um, I don't know that they ask as much, but I can tell you um, an overwhelming majority of our patients uh, use apps. And I would say this is probably more on the female side than the male side. I don't, I don't know that I have too many uh, guys that I know that are downloading apps, but the females are using it a lot. And the, mostly they're menstrual cycle trackers um, and ovulation trackers. I think women are uh, interested in tracking this just for their own knowledge, even if they're not trying to get pregnant. Um, and so there are uh, quite a few out there. Um, you know, most of them are fairly accurate in terms of trying to you know, historically track your cycles, your menstrual cycles. So, you know, when you started and, and, and uh, you can quantify it, uh, you know, the, the menstrual flow, um, they're okay at predicting when your next menstrual cycle is going to come and when you're going to ovulate if you have regular periods. So if you have regular periods, they're very helpful to keep track of things. And going back to the Barry Manilow question, you know, if if you're able to at least pinpoint within a three to four day window of when you're ovulating, then you can try to time um, intercourse during that time. But at least you're not kind of trying to do intercourse every other day for 
14 to 21 days in a row, which can, can, can actually become quite challenging. So those types of things are helpful. Um, there is a lot of technology in terms of wearable devices, uh, home testing that is really um, uh, at the forefront of the fertility industry. I would say a lot of that is early stage though. So we have hormone trackers that you can measure if you pee on a stick and it can give you your estrogen, LH, FSH levels, which are all very important hormones for tracking fertility. Um, but the problem is um, the in in those their early stage and we, we want to continue seeing development in that area. But depending on how much fluid you took in the day before, how dehydrated you are or not, the concentrations can be affected. And so We've done studies to look at uh, first void in the morning so that you know that the urine is, you know, you haven't had that much in intake. It's probably more consistent, but even that um, can get challenging. There are, there, there's a, actually a home semen analysis or sperm kit that you can give a sample in a cup and it's almost a DIY like project. You can, you have to pipette it out, put it on a slide but you can actually plug a camera, the slide and, and a cam this device into your iPhone or your, or, 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 your, or your Android, and it will record how the sperm look on a slide and then using technology quantify it and tell you whether you have normal sperm parameters or not. So amazing technologies that are emerging in the market. Um, a lot of it has to do with home testing. Um, I think we're still very early stage, but I think that... Uh, the next five, 10 years in this space, in, in this in this home testing market will be um, advances in the five, 10 years we're gonna have coming up are gonna be eclipse what we've accomplished in the last 50 years. Yeah, and you kind of alluded to artificial intelligence with with the, you know, kind of the, the at-home options. Is uh, I keep seeing really interesting studies about like O-site prediction based on artificial intelligence reads. Is this something that you guys are, are dealing with on a, on a more common basis now? It is. It's again, that's another part of, you know, AI has obviously exploded in the last five years and, and it's been around for a long time. Just, I think the ability to process that date, those data sets has become um, better. And so there is in the IVF lab, we, we, we have a lot going on in regards to looking at egg quality and embryo quality. So we have the ability to capture pictures of the embryo along the way as it's being developed. And those pictures, um, we typically use an embryologist to look at it under the microscope and give it a grade and say, how good is this embryo or not? And, and then based on that, you try to pick the best embryo and put it back in the uterus and see if a pregnancy uh, occurs, right? So the question is, can AI predict which embryo is better compared to the human eye. And, and, and there is um, there's promising data that the more we gather AI data sets on this, that we can use AI to help augment our embryologists in embryo selection, embryo grading, sperm grading. So um, a lot of it's under image recognition technology. And then there's a whole nother set of AI on clinic management, workflow management, um, and, and picking therapies on that side as well. So it is definitely hot and heavy on that right now. It is fascinating to see this technology roll out in real time, and it sounds like it's already having an impact. But I also wonder if your your prior statement about how most of the apps are being used by women is is uh, undercounting the apps used by guys like uh, USGA and MLB.com. I think the guys are all over those apps and uh, just not sure they directly relate to fertility. But we're talking a bit about environmental influences and the fact that a lot of this data is starting to come out, but we really don't know what it means at this point. Uh, has your counseling around environmental threats to sperm production, uh, when you talk to couples, has that counseling changed in the last few years or uh, is it remaining pretty much the same? I would say it's it's stayed fairly constant. You know, we talk to people about avoiding um, high exposures to pesticides, um, the that's probably the biggest one especially i'm down here in texas we have a lot of farmers and ranchers and um in in that capacity we worry about its exposure to sperm uh we, i would say environmental impacts are always important to say let's make sure you're being careful about what you expose your body to and so um i would me personally, as a physician, I feel like that stayed constant. But I, you know, I feel like we've been always telling people to be careful with what they put in their body and what they surround themselves with, right? Um, so it's 
a part of the field that we're watching very closely and people do talk about it in, in terms of some counseling to the both both the male and female patients in that scenario. Now, we, we just had a national headline about the Canadian wildfires that have spread smoke throughout much of the Northeast and even part of the Midwest. D- does this kind of thing factor in at all to uh, infertility treatments or counseling? Yeah, this is, um, you know, the, the wildfires has been really kind of a literally a wild phenomenon in our space. The, um, the air, the, the smoke and the air changes that are happening in the Northeast, um, you know, we've talked to some of our colleagues in, in the New York area, New Jersey area. And um, of course, you can see it in the air, you can smell it uh, all, all throughout the state. But when, when it comes to IVF specifically, we are very cognizant about the air quality control in the IVF lab. Um, I mean, millions of dollars spent at each clinic to try to maintain the best air quality you can in your clinic. We have incubators that we grow embryos in. We monitor oxygen, CO2 levels, pH levels, and everything. And we have asked our colleagues in the Northeast, is this having an impact on your embryo development? Um, can you smell any of this air in the IVF lab? And what's interesting is, and, and maybe sometimes people don't realize, the level of air filtration system, quality control systems we have in place in an IVF lab are quite uh, unique. Um, they're very high, gr- high commercial grade. The air in some IVF labs, including like ones like ours, the air inside turns over every eight to 10 minutes. The entire room air circulate is circulated through the filtration system every eight to 10 minutes and runs through filters to, to do that. So it hasn't impacted them yet. However, the question is, the longer it does, how, how much of the door is opening and closing to the IVF lab and the air is now coming in and that's why we have to circulate it. So it's quite fascinating. I think it's something that everybody's worried about. We actually have talked about it quite a bit in our field uh, and, and speaking to our colleagues up north. Um they seem to be hanging in there. They, they have very good systems in place. They have very high quality IVF labs up there. Um, but it is a big question mark uh, that had come up and everybody is you know, hoping for the best. And, and so far, it seems to be working out OK. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Uh, one thing that Bruce and I have taken an active role in is uh, kind of expanding the counseling in the media when one of these wildfire events occurs to include pregnant women as as part of the populations to protect. Uh, and we've we've spoken with the Weather Channel and New York Times about that message. But what you're bringing up is, is really interesting because there's the indoor air quality to consider as well, uh, which you know is one thing that the World Health Organization, for example, focused on when, when we uh, consult with them. So uh, probably under that that message in particular, I have not seen anywhere uh, in the coverage of the wildfire smoke, you know, to, to think, think about how it could affect uh, developing embryos. Uh, so definitely something we'll, we'll maybe follow up with you on um, that down the road. Yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 it certainly has an impact. And, and I agree with you. Outdoor pollution is what, you know, a lot of people talk about, but it's so hard to, how do you get that under control? And so indoor is where you can run it through filtration systems and things like that. I think the fertility industry has been at the forefront of that. Uh, I would say, I mean, you won't meet a, a person in the IVF lab world that doesn't have some kind of opinion on air air quality and air filters in, and, and, and spends a normal amount of time monitoring that. And we, we certainly do ourselves. So indoor air quality for embryo development is very important for us. And of course, that embryo doesn't stop being vulnerable once it's implanted. Then it just uh, gets carried around. Uh, without uh, air filtration benefit uh, for most of its uh, short lifespan. So it's an evolving topic. It's really interesting. Is there a risk from hot tub use as far as male fertility is concerned? Yep. So it's interesting. Even on our patient intake forms we have, do you wear boxers briefs? Do you, are you in a hot tub? Some very traditional questions in the past. And I think those are still on there partly because of data collection. Um, but Hot tub or hot sauna use over probably an hour a day at temperatures exceeding 100 degrees could have some impact, but a hot tub use just uh, more leisurely, even 20, 30 minutes, you know, once a week or twice a week is is not going to impact sperm counts. I think the jacuzzi industry just breathed a huge sigh of relief right there. So it's good to to shine some light (laughs) on that. 
How about drinking? Can guys can guys have a glass of wine or a six pack of beer or where's the limit there? What do we know? Yep. So we, we try to limit that as best we can. You know, when people uh, try are, are trying to start getting pregnant, couples, you'll see the women be much more disciplined in this manner. And, and I'm generalizing, of course, but, you know, the um, but yes, uh, alcohol can have an impact on sperm quality and uh, motility. Um, in the purest sense, you would want you, you would try to abstain, especially if someone's coming to us. By the time they actually have 12 to 18 months of not getting pregnant, I want everything to be as good as possible if we can get it there, right? Um, there is some literature out there that no more than one drink in a day, no more than four drinks in a week. Um, and, and there's some quantifiable data that if you exceed that, it can have an impact on sperm quality. And how about other popular recreational use of like marijuana. Yeah, this is a very controversial one for uh, for the fertility space because we don't have great data to say, does marijuana impact um, sperm quality or quantities in significant fashions? And again, hard to quantify. Uh, I'm a believer of, hey, it's a, it's a toxin just like smoking and it has some impact. So we, um, we, we ask for couples to reduce that both on the male and female side. Uh, the, you know, the, there's no great data set on this. But again, once someone's struggling to get pregnant, you know, our philosophy is why not cut this out for a period of time while you're trying to get pregnant? So that's what we go with, but not great data on, on, on being able to quantify that. And of course, I always get the pushback of, well, I've had uh, buddies who smoke marijuana and they get pregnant without any problem. And, I, you know, that's always the... Uh, frustrating part is anecdotally, and, and, and I have to explain to them that that doesn't mean that it's not having some impact. Well, and, and you made a reference to it already, but what is what is the uh, the takeaway on, no pun intended there, I guess, on underwear? What kind of underwear should guys worry about, if any at all? Yep. So uh, you, you can wear whichever underwear you want is the good news. Um, boxers, boxer briefs, um, it, it does not matter. The concept there was if you wear um, briefs that actually hold the testicles closer to the body, does that increase the body temperature or the temperature? Does it? But uh, overall, I would say most of us have moved away from that. That doesn't seem to have an impact. And at the top of the show, we, we talked about the headline that a lot of people have seen where uh, both Al Pacino and Robert De Niro uh, are expecting children at the same time. What... Uh, what kind of impact does paternal age have? Yep. So that is uh, paternal age is an interesting thing uh, in that, you know, we hear that fertility declines for females after a certain age. And, and that actually can start even from age 28 uh, through 35 to 40. And by 42, 43, 44 really declines significantly. And me after 40, it does, but I would say, most of our patients after 45 that we treat are getting pregnant through donor eggs or some other type of fertility treatment. On the male side, that's a, a very different um, uh, timeline and factor. So men can actually have very viable sperm and vibrant sperm into their 70s, 80s, as you can see from some of the headlines that have made the news recently. There are some risks with that. Um, it's it's they're, they're low, but there are some some potential ties to autism, some mental health disorders, some rare genetic disorders the older men get. Um, I think that that's probably in the, into the 60s and older when we um, see some of that. Uh, but it is rare, but there is some things there to worry about, but, but again, rare. Well, speaking of movie stars, uh, you've had a, a bit of time on, on the screen with media. Uh, we we saw that you had done a bit with the Broad, uh, Bradshaw Bunch and taking care of Terry Bradshaw's daughter. Uh, what, what, what do you take away from experiences like that? Like, is there is there an educational moment when you kind of reach a, a wide media audience like that? There is. We're very fortunate in the fertility um, medical industry in that I think we get a lot of coverage now uh, in the media, uh, both uh, on the news. On social media and even in television and and entertainment, 
Um, and I think it's great. I think that people should be talking about fertility more. Physicians are becoming podcasters, like, you know, in, in, in to talk about it more. Patients are being advocates. But fertility is one of those things 20, 30 years ago, nobody wanted to talk about and, and mention that they had infertility. In fact, if you were going into a fertility clinic, I think people were very nervous, wanted to go in the back door, go out the back door, hope they never saw someone from their community sitting in the lobby and exposed that, oh my gosh, I have you know infertility. And, and I get it. I mean, I understand why nobody wants to struggle to get to pregnancy or really any type of thing you want to achieve. But all of this uh, exposure has really brought light to fertility is real. We, we, we talk about one in eight couples will struggle with infertility. I mean, that's 12%. So one in eight. And uh, the amount of things that are out there to talk about it in, and that it's okay. It's not, you know, obviously anyone's first choice for how to get pregnant, but uh, ultimately people have very high success rates and, and success in fertility clinics if they pursue treatments, pursue workups and, and, and things like that. So it's been great. We we love getting on podcasts. I, that that show was a very neat show. Terry Bradshaw is a amazing guy. His, his daughter, Rachel, super nice uh, gal and, and, um, they're fun. You know, they're neat to do. You don't do stuff like that in your career that often, you know, when, 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 when they come around, you, you, you like to do them. Uh, great exposure, obviously, but really more of such a neat experience to get to do a, a reality TV segment like that. So. But it sounds like overall you're feeling really uh, optimistic about a couple's chances when they come to see you. Yes. Couples chances are, are very high. Um, the, you know, there obviously there's first the workup and what's the reason for infertility, right? What's the cause? Now here's the, the tricky part of that. Uh, success rates are very high. However, they need to, um, first get a workup, figure it out, figure out what's the reason. And ultimately IVF is likely the, um, the, the success or the treatment option that has the highest success rate and will get most of our patients to a successful pregnancy, but that's a one, it's an expensive process an expensive endeavor, and it doesn't always work on the very first try. So the, some of the bigger barriers to, to getting people to a successful pregnancy or a successful delivery, because just getting pregnant is not enough, but to, to a successful delivery, um, cost can be prohibitive, emotional, um, toll that it takes are, 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 are big drivers. And so if we can help couples get past those two things, you know, you know, understanding the process, getting comfortable with even the fact that I need to do fertility treatments to get to have a baby, even though we've been trained our whole lives, you know, it's going to happen on its own. And let's work really hard for many years not to have a baby. And then all of a sudden flip the switch and get married in a traditional sense, and now try to have a baby, right. And so, um, but those things, once we get past those, in general, I would say 90% of people that walk through that front door of a fertility clinic for the first time will end up with a successful pregnancy if they stick with it. That's incredible. And I and, and has that number gone up in the last couple of decades? It has. I mean, it's gone up um, significantly. And I think that the reasons for that are the technologies have gotten better and the ability to help people get to a pregnancy. So certainly, I mean, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I mean, you were dealing with pregnancy rates of anywhere from 10 to 25% in an IVF cycle. I mean, but we're, we're seeing well over 50% success rates in, you know, good prognosis patients. Um, and, and now the success rates under 50% are typically the patients that are usually 40 and older or, um, really have some other reason, um, like something we call diminished ovarian reserve, where we have um, some some concerns with egg quality, and then, and then success rates can go down. But yeah, overall, and even those couples, if they stick with it, uh, you know, it, it, it does become a numbers game sometimes of, 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 of attempts and trying, but they will get there. Well, between being allowed to use the jacuzzi, wear any underwear you want, and these success rates, you've given us a lot of a lot of optimism and ending on a high note here. Uh, so thanks so much, Ravi, for joining us. Uh, it was really a pleasure. And uh, we'll have to, you know, see you at a conference coming up soon. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Good to see you guys, at least today through the podcast. I appreciate the invite and uh, look forward to seeing you next. 
Thanks, Ravi. And I'm sure I'm speaking for thousands of people out there. Thank you for the work that you do, because uh, you do produce miracles out of out of uh, what I'm sure to most of your patients seem like uh, pretty difficult circumstances. Thanks. Thanks so much. At the end of every episode, we like to give the listener some concrete things they can actually take home and do uh, to make themselves a happier, healthier person. In this case, it'll be to be a healthier, happier pregnancy partner. Now, we heard from Ravi Gata about some good news for the guys. You can keep using the jacuzzi for the most part within reason. Uh, you can wear whatever you want to under you know, underwear. But there are some precautionary principles about things like alcohol and marijuana use, which should be scaled back or stopped altogether. Now, from the Green Dock's perspective, we would add that there are some precautionary principles about these toxic chemicals, particularly the endocrine disrupting chemicals. You know, we didn't highlight it so much in uh, Ravi's introduction, but his field of medicine is often referred to as REI, Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility. So it's right there in the name. If you're disrupting endocrinology with an endocrine disrupting chemical, it's going to have some influence on fertility. So you want to avoid uh, the kind of chemicals that come up in this in this category, some such as plastics, uh, BPA are commonly known. When I was writing the guidance for our National Medical Society, we, we poured through the evidence and, and made a list that, that we'll provide in the show notes uh, for guys who may be working with either, say, industrial solvents uh, or other kind of uh, uh, workplace exposures. These would be things like pesticides, uh, often used in farming, uh, benzene, and, and taurine uh, also, also come up as uh, environmental chemicals to avoid. And continuing along that line of uh, Green Dock perspective, we talked a little bit earlier in the episode about research that suggests that prolonged exposure to heat or air pollution or both may have an impact on sperm quality. That's still being worked out, but it is uh, something to keep in mind. And again, this connects us back to a theme that we seem to hit on every uh, episode of our podcast that climate change is a part of everything increasingly in our lives. So there are some things in that light that we can be thinking about as our uh, as members of our community, uh, particularly if you're guys and you want to be supportive of, of uh, pregnancy with your partner or just in general fertility uh, in our society. So uh, you can advocate with elected officials for uh, more cooling centers so people can cool off, places to go when it gets really hot outside. Uh, you can also argue in favor of reducing the use of single-use plastics and styrofoam in restaurants and things like that. All of these things are connected ultimately and will all have health benefits not only uh, towards supporting fertility and pregnancies, but just our general health as well as cooling off our climate. Another feature we like to include in our conclusion is something we're calling Obstetrics 2.0 uh, or Obstetrics Plus, which is basically a modern, enhanced version of how we deliver care with a better understanding of the environmental contributors to the things we care about. For this episode, in honors of Father's Day, we'd like to offer an expanded view of how we approach fertility and pregnancy. We often talk about environmental factors for women's health, things like extreme heat and exposure to toxic chemicals. We've shared and learned that even though the science is not settled, these things seem to be an emerging trend contributing to things like decreased sperm quality and decreased testosterone. So for all the healthcare practitioners out there, when you're having your preconception visit, this would be a time to do more than what I have to admit I often do, which is just ask about the partner's history, if they've ever kind of uh, had fathered children, and maybe order a semen analysis. This might be a time to encourage the partner to be there, uh, to investigate truly their mental and physical fitness. Are they getting themselves in the best shape they can and best state of health? And for all the prenatal visits, make sure you're including the partners uh, and particularly for this episode, make sure we're including the dads as part of the conversation. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I have walked into the, the prenatal visit room and introduced myself to the, to the guy there, shook the hand, maybe asked about some sporting event if they were wearing a sports t-shirt or hat. 
And they tell me, wow, thanks. That's the first time anybody's done that, this pregnancy. Uh, they are showing up, and I think it's a good time to uh, acknowledge them. And in a broader sense, it's a way to uh, include the, the, you know, the other half of the equation. And an additional message for guys about to become dads. There's more to becoming a good father than just providing healthy sperm. Earlier in my career, I co-wrote a book about women's health problems written for men. And as part of that effort, I taught a class, I only let guys in the room, about estrogen and PMS and menopause. It was really a fascinating experience. Uh, and after five years, a key lesson that emerged was we have to stop trying to fix everything our partners bring to us, even though that's a very well-meaning instinct, and learn to shut up and actually listen, to ask questions, and genuinely pay attention to the answers. And it's not necessarily easy. I had to learn this lesson myself the hard way, because a couple of years before that, my wife and I conceived. She ended up having an early miscarriage. But afterwards, she told me that I really wasn't there for her the way she wanted me to be. I think I was more doctor and less husband. I don't know why. But it's a tough lesson to learn sometimes. And it inspired me to put on this class for men. So when you try this, guys, you might be surprised to learn that in many instances, if not most, you don't have to do much other than to listen. The listening alone is incredibly therapeutic. I'm not going to ask you to believe me, but I do want you to try it. It's really important right now because you're both having a baby. And more than ever, your behavior towards your partner truly matters, whether it's the first time she's gotten pregnant or her fifth. How you show up can make all the difference. You can contribute to a much stronger bond between the two of you, and that's something both of you will appreciate going forward. What we're saying is this. Fatherhood is an essential part of the pregnancy journey that begins long before you hold a baby in your arms. And that's the final push. Well, thanks, Bruce, for sharing that. And with that, it feels like it's time for a drink. Although we just told our audience to not drink alcohol too much. So in that spirit, uh, no pun intended there either, we, uh, we are ending every episode with a mocktail. So it's becoming kind of more of a popular part of uh, restaurant and bar offerings. It's something we get a lot of questions about from uh, patients who are trying to get pregnant. And now hopefully we hear more questions from men who are uh, you know, considering this as part of their preconception training. So today we have, what do we have here, Bruce? We have uh, Drink Monday brand, and I've got, I've got the Mescal. What do you have there? I have something called Ritual, and it's a zero-proof tequila alternative. So I'm opening it up. Ah, that sound. You know, whether there's alcohol in the bottle or not, that sound just, just is intoxicating. I can feel my parasympathetic system <laughs> kicking in and my blood pressure dropping. <laughs> anyway, here's to you. Cheers. What do you think of yours? So my, mine's the mescal, and I, I, I basically made it the way I would typically make mescal, which, which is a little bit of salt in the rim. Uh, I put some lime juice on the rim. Uh, I, it, it's good. You know, mescal is such a distinct, smoky, strong flavor. I imagine it's hard to fully capture that in a uh, alcohol-free version. But this definitely comes through with some, like, like a little bit of heat. And it it does taste like it's got some of that, uh, like, muscle to it, like, like mescal does. Well, I didn't go for the lime slice, but I do have a clear ice, ice cube, which doesn't impart any flavor, which is kind of nice. So what comes through is the taste of this uh, zero proof tequila alternative. And I, I, I think, first of all, I would say it doesn't really taste like tequila to me. It is a bit smoky. It's kind of halfway to mezcal in terms of my taste buds. Um, it's not an unpleasant taste. It's just, I would have to say, not very tequila adjacent in terms of the immediate hit of the flavor. Yeah, this, this one doesn't uh, make me feel like I'm drinking mezcal, but again, it's such a distinct flavor, kind of what, what can. Uh, what, I, what I would probably do is add some tonic to this and make it kind of like a uh, you know afternoon tonic 
drink instead of drinking like if you're going to drink soda water or or plain like seltzer this would probably be a more flavorful version where you could pretend you're drinking a, a tequila and tonic or a mezcal and tonic I think you're right. I think that's where I would take this. I would definitely put a lime slice in. I think it could use that little kick of citrus uh, to go along with it and consider making it as a part of a mixed tequila-adjacent drink. So uh, it's definitely not unpleasant. It's just it's not what my mind was expecting when I told myself I was sipping something that was a tequila. Well, speaking of smoky, uh, that brings us to not only what's been the headlines uh, recently with the Canadian wildfire smoke and why the New York Times has been talking to us, asking about how to avoid it. But that sets up our, our next episode. We'll be talking about air pollution. So tune in to the Green Docs. Uh, subscribe to the channel so you don't miss it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, come to our website, greendocspodcast.com. Check out the show notes and links for everything from uh, the counseling we provided, from Medical Society Guidance, to Ravi Gata's appearance on Bradshaw Bunch. And of course, send us comments and questions. This episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Bacar and Nate Nicola, and produced by John Beethan of Imagine Podcasting. Check out our website, Green Docs Podcast, all one word. Or you can like, subscribe, tell your friends, and share. Thanks for being here. See you soon. And happy Father's Day.